Thursday. Welcome to a Thursday evening edition of TIU, Temple Israel University, our Memphis Synagogue's lifelong learning platform with something for everyone, whether you want to learn Hebrew, study the big ideas of Judaism in the semester course we just launched last night, or if you want to deepen and grow your mind, heart, and soul in a myriad of ways, just go to timemphis.org as several of you are, I know even more probably on Facebook. One consequence of COVID has been the broadening of our reach to so many of you who are watching not only in Memphis, but across the country, in Israel and around the world. I'm Micah Greenstein, one of Temple Israel of Memphis's rabbis. And I've been looking forward to this special program for more than three months. Tonight will not disappoint and not because of me. Here's how I wanna do this introduction. You know how you never forget the first time you met someone who made a lasting impression on you? Well, over three months ago, the day before Katie Couric made a special add-on to her national book tour to speak at our synagogue about her life story and new book as the only woman in the then male-dominated news anchor world. I had already blocked out an entire morning with the regional director of the entire Western United States, plus Memphis and New Orleans for the Jewish Agency of Israel. That major position oversees all the Israeli emissaries uh, in all the Western cities and Memphis and New Orleans known as Shlichim. This director also oversees Aliyah, immigration to Israel. She works with and guides partnerships with federations as large as Los Angeles with over 700,000 Jews or Memphis with 10,000 Jews. I picked up this extraordinary person in the lobby of the Hilton for our morning. And while I gave her the VIP tour of the National Civil Rights Museum, I learned more from her during our time together than she could have possibly learned from me. Her name is Alana Corton, and she earned first degrees in law and psychology. Then she got another master's degree in conflict resolution, all in Israel, before entering a PhD in gender studies from Bar Ilan University, a top Israeli university located outside Tel Aviv, next to the Kiryat Ono suburb where I served as a cantorial soloist while in rabbinical school and living in Israel in the 1980s. Dr. Corton's professional career began in corporate law, but upon moving to Israel's South 13 years ago, she became an activist working in the field of women's rights. She is married and a mother of four children, yet she still finds time to run her own legal practice, specializing in women's rights in the workplace and family. And she also found time for many years to teach Zumba to women and young girls, listen to this, in Israel's at-risk population, as a means to self-empowerment for women and young girls. She lectures on law and gender and on social entrepreneurship. And this evening, my friends, is just an introduction 
to Alana's in-person visit to Memphis on April 11th, the Monday evening before Passover, which this year also happens to be Yom HaAliyah, the day each year recognizing Aliyah. Back to our late September day together in Memphis, over the course of our time together, Alana became my teacher, especially when we discussed the hidden phenomenon based on her doctoral research, which led to the significant book she has authored, and it led to a book tour all over Israel. It's a book I would love to get published into English because Empowering Girls and Women, as many of you know, is one of our top tikkun olam priorities at Temple Israel with Alan Lightman's work in Cambodia, our member. It's a personal justice passion of our synagogue. The title of Alana's book, Imprisoned Women in Extreme Controlling Relationships, is not meant to be alienating or to exclude men. Just the opposite. My hope for this hour in dialogue with friend and teacher, Dr. Corton, is to show how her expertise is an opportunity for both men and women to become more aware of relationship dynamics so that all male-female relationships can flourish. Whether inside your house, the workplace, in Israel or America, her research on women and relationships and Alana's expertise on gender studies can also be applied to the marvelous two women whose wedding I conducted two months ago. So Alana, it's great to see you again. And tonight we'll have to suffice until those of us in Memphis can welcome you back safely and with open arms on April 11th. I prepared seven questions for you that I did not share as you know, so that this TIU interview will elicit unrehearsed responses from our expert. Question one, turning to male-female relationships, Alana. This past Saturday night, I did a wedding with a husband and a wife. The bride is a nurse. She is fully employed. Did I facilitate a hierarchical structure, even if she has her own career? Can you begin tonight by sharing how marriage can foster extremely controlling behaviors toward women in every culture, society, whether you're working or unemployed? What's going on that you discovered from your doctoral research? Okay. So first of all, thank you for this amazing introduction. And I have to say that as much as you think you learned from me, I fell in love with Memphis and everything you told me about it and showed me. And the great coffee, I have to say, being in America, it's very, very rare. So I really, really, I thank you for your time. And this is the community that I visit the most frequently this, uh, this year, it seems. So Memphis is on my map, thanks to you, Rabbi. So I really, really appreciate the tour and the friendship and the ongoing conversations that yielded tonight and also, of course, April, that I'm very, very excited to come. So um, to your question, I, I just want to say I'm not an expert, okay? I just researched what I did and I, you know, written the book and I have a PhD and I'm a lawyer and I met a lot of couples and I met a lot of women. So I have an observation, maybe, is the correct term. 
So um, did you just make a uh, construction of hierarchy in the, in, within this couple that you just married? The answer is yes, because um, it seems from everything that I've seen, the women I interviewed, the couples I met, and everything I uh, researched is that the only kind of like connecting line or what would predict are there going to be extreme controlling behaviors within a family is whether they are married or not. It's really the only question. And what I mean by that is um, when I was meeting women and interviewing them and writing the book and kind of like exploring this phenomenon that I had no idea existed, I was wondering, and also everybody around me was were wondering, how can we frame this and say what type of people, what type of couples, what type of women, what type of men would behave like this or would encounter in such a relationship? And, you know, the um, people want to say, oh, it's them and not me. You know, it's because they live in poverty. It's because she doesn't work. It's because, you know, they didn't go to university because they don't, they don't have kids. It's because they've been married for a year. So the answer is that it happens everywhere and the numbers are pretty high. And by it, I mean, we'll explain in a minute what it is, but it happens both in America in Israel and everywhere I went. And the only thing that kind of like gets the phenomena going is the fact that you get married. When you, when you get into marriage, and again, speaking as someone who is married, yes, I actually got married three times to the same one. It was three ceremonies. But I'm saying I'm not against marriage. I'm just saying that the marital um, framework construction construct, especially in Israel, is the one that creates this kind of like different values for men and women. And it's sad to say that in 2022, it still is the case. So thank you for that. Question two. Yeah. has a little background here. Um, among the best counseling diagnostics in premarital counseling in the United States, it's called Prepare and Rich. It's a series of 120 questions that each partner answers, and it reveals strengths, growth areas, challenges. Most people don't know it was developed by PhDs like you, only at the University of Minnesota, not Bar-Ilan. They developed it because they found that most marriages end not with the midlife affair or what you see in the movies on Netflix, that most marriages end within the first three to seven years with the average age among Americans being early to mid thirties. My question relates to your insights on the American Jewish community since you're in LA now, because most American Jewish women who choose to get married, get married older. And the 89% who are not Orthodox in America, they not only pursue careers, but many delay having children or raising children. Your PhD focuses on an Israeli society with at least 70 to 100 different cultures and ethnicities. The American Jewish community, at least the 85 plus percent who are non-Orthodox, are more diverse racially and sexually than people realize, but are in a much more homogeneous secular society in the United States than in Israel. And while I as a rabbi serve the 20% who are struggling financially, many who didn't have a winter break these past two weeks, most American Jews are not indigent, they're not Bedouins, 
They have found Corona more of a scary inconvenience than the cause of a loved one's death, even if at least the 14 of the 100 temple members who have died the past two years died from it. But generally speaking, with all that, just what are the most pressing issues impacting women from your observation in Israel and the United States? And the more specific you can get to the populations you and I serve in West LA and East Memphis, um, in addition to our heartfelt concern for the African-American community and Bedouins, the better. What are the most important issues impacting women okay. in our cultures? So I think I want to explain maybe a little something about Israel that is important to, uh, to your question or kind of like the observation that I will share. Um, unlike America, in Israel, there is no separation of church and state, you say, really, but it's, isn't it religion and state? Yes, it is. Okay, so I mean, there's no church, right? So by no separation, I mean that halakha or halachic law rules a marital or a personal status in Israel. That means that once you are married, and it doesn't matter if you got married through the rabbinical institute or not, you have to get a divorce through the rabbinical institute. It's lechomra, never mind, never mind the reasons, okay? But it is in a sense that you've entered into a system, into an orthodox system, even if you don't choose to, or even if your entire life is, doesn't revolve around uh, orthodoxy, you do when you get married, okay? Actually, I mean, you do throughout life because uh, if you look at the at the yearly calendar, you see all the holidays and you see the Shabbat and you see, I mean, orthodoxy or halakha is very much present in Israel, 365 days a year. And in everything that you do, okay, it influences your work, it influences whether you have transportation, it influences everything. So when it comes to marriage, you enter into a system that has halakhic laws. So if a woman today, doesn't want to stay with her husband. Whatever the reason is, she has to get a divorce through the rabbinical institute. And the law is that uh, the husband has to willingly give her the get or give her the permission to leave in a sense, right? So it's not willful in a sense. So this creates what I guess doesn't happen here or maybe happens here for different reasons, a lot of extortion, right? If the, if the husbands always have the power to end the marriage, to break the marriage, or to give permission for the wife to leave, that means that they always will have the power. And going back to your first question of the hierarchy in marriage, this is the, the kind of like the first step. You go into the marriage and you're like this already automatically because you can't leave it and, unless he wills it, right? So if that is the basis, that is the basis for everything. And now if I spread it out, to uh, all of the other kind of like areas of life that women experience in Israel, let's go to the legislative or to the government or to CEOs of big companies or to mayors or to, um, I don't know. I mean, every field you look at, the numbers of women do not match their numbers in society and the power does not match the power they should have in society. And financially, they don't receive as much uh, as the as their mayor counterpart partners do, right? So I don't have to say it to you. Like if, if we talk about the wage gap, right? It exists in America. What is it? Uh, Sixty six cents a do uh, per dollar, right? Is it 
the, the women get the 66 uh, cents per every dollar that a, that a male gets. Very similar in, in Israel. And again, still, after all of this activism, after all of these struggles, it still exists. So if I look at kind of like the pressing issues that are happening today is that um, we actually have more women ministers and more women CEOs and more women in decision-making uh, roles than we ever had before. Like there's something within this situation that brought women up. Uh, it's not something, it's a lot of work, you know, a lot of field work, a lot of activism that, that made it happen. But if you look at all of the um, important places, like there was a Corona committee that was deciding everything, you know, do we open schools? Do we have a fourth vaccine? All of these things. Were there women on this committee? Zero, right? And that is the case in every single kind of like important junction that you would meet in Israel, again, unfortunately. And so I can share that um, this week, there was a few, um, a few things that happened within a few societies that could be interesting. So let's look, for example, um, at the Haredi or the ultra-Orthodox um, society in Israel. I don't know if you heard, but uh, for years, and this is something that has to do with the way this culture works, for years, there was secrecy around uh, things that happen within the community. It's a very closed community. They don't take out their, how do you say, dirty laundry, right? They don't, they don't air it out. They don't share with the world. No one comes out talking about anything. So a lot of things have stayed inside. This week, um, a very famous uh, author and rabbi committed suicide after he was accused with uh, sexual harassment and rape and other, um, and other things uh, for years. We're talking about decades that he's been doing with uh, students and, and with girls and with women. A couple of days after, one of the women who complained against him also committed suicide, saying she can't deal with life. So this is um, like a Hiroshima bomb, right? in the ultra-Orthodox community that suddenly from this case, a lot of things are coming up, meaning people are speaking up, people are coming up, and the fact that this is a secret and closed community, this is, this is a front of the Israeli society. So why are women dealing with this? First of all, you know, we can, we can uh, uh, thank the Me Too movement and, and everything else that kind of like says that we believe you. There's a lot of um, activists that are saying, we believe you, whatever you say, we believe you, because whenever you complain, usually it's, oh, let's, let's see if what you're saying is true. Let's see if we can get the evidence and things like that. So there's this belief as a first step. And so all of the campaigns are, we believe you, speak up, right? And so if the Haredi community is dealing with this, they are, they're like a hundred years behind in the feminist um, uh, revolution behind us, I would say, behind you know the America and everything else. They're a hundred years behind. Look at what's, what's happening with them. So this is one of like you know the biggest bombs that are happening um, today in Israel that that I can share. That I guess is important to know. Well, I guess we're telepathic. I, 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 you just anticipated part of my third question. Um, not just that Haredi author who sexually tormented so many people. But we have a serial torturer, Jeffrey Epstein, who took his own life before he had to face justice, even if his accomplice was finally convicted. Um, uh, full disclosure, I'm, I'm drawn to your work because I believe that empowering girls and women is the civil rights issue of the 21st century. And it doesn't have to, we don't even have to talk about our work in Cambodia and the developing world with um, the sex trade or genital mutilation, simply um, empowering 
girls and women so that they're not enchained in prison and marriages. Um, Cambodia is the poorest country and the girls that we've mentored and taught, um, they grew up with no electricity or running water and they're now running banks and universities. So yes, cheek vala atid. And I think, as you said, even though there are no women on the Corona committee, which is deplorable, <laughs> I can't imagine, but you said that's typical, you know, thank God for my Rav Michaeli and you even, you're very modest. You introduced a bill in the Knesset too, or um, that I hope you'll talk about. But the Western male CEO world produces the Harvey Weinsteins, the Jeffrey Epsteins, uh, other men who either prey on teen girls or objectify women as sexual objects, um, as Katie Kirk dealt with in her rise, um, in, as I mentioned, in the all-male world, which is part of the Me Too movement. movement. So yes, there's a girl power movement globally, but this whole Me Too movement, which is essentially an uprising. It's, it's largely a Western phenomenon. I, disagree with me. If, if, if it's largely a Western phenomenon in places like Israel, America, and Europe. What did the Me Too movement in Israel really look like? What are the difference and similarities? What is the legislative impact of the Me Too movement in Israel? And as modest as you are, share the bill. Okay. So uh, remind me to share the bill in the end because it's not directly related to me. Oh, good. Okay. Shows you what I know. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. I need you. Go ahead. Okay. So I totally agree with what you said. I feel that every time I find, you know, a phenomena, a movement, something that's happening in the world, I always ask myself, who exactly are we talking about? Because like you said about people who didn't have a winter break, or like when we were discussing during uh, Corona, you know, who goes to work, who doesn't go to work, who stays with the kids over Zoom. You know, if you have a sick child, what do you what do you do? There are huge societies in which this is not an option. I mean, get, taking a sick day or not showing up to work or one parent is working, one isn't, is just not an option. So it's really important to remember, like you say, there is a movement, me too. If you'll ask, uh, you know, half of the population in Israel, they'll say, oh, come on, what else is new? And why do I need to hashtag anything? I'm living it. I'm experiencing it. This is my life. I'm just tolerant towards it. You know, you go do your struggles. I'll just, you know, do, do my, my life and, and my, my, my life struggles and my day to day, you know? So it's really, really important to kind of like think about these revolutions, how narrow and how kind of like white privilege they are, if we may, because they are, they are. And so what happened in Israel with Me Too is like everything else, you know, it's a social media wave. So it came obviously to the social media in Israel. And then one of the things that happened, I remember it really the, the first day it happened is that um, this organization started uh, being active first on social media, but then also an organization. It's called Achat Mitok Achat, which means one of one. And what it is, it says, you know how we talk always about these statistics, you know, how many women, out of, you know, are, are you know, harassed. How many sexual harassment, how many rape, how many, how many? It's one out of five, one out of nine, one out of three. This organization wanted to say, you know what? It's really one out of one, okay? It is by, by the age uh, of 18, I think the statistic is, you would have experienced it once at least, one of one. And so what, what did they started doing is that they started kind of like collecting testimonials um, anonymically, like they, they were getting stories from women. And in their database, they would cross 
reference to find the offender. Okay, so in this way, this way you could come up, tell your story, not to reveal it, not to be exposed by your name, but the system will come back to you and say, hey, we already received 29 complaints with the same, you know, this, this is kind of like how we got to the same person. And then they would all go to the police together. Okay, so what it did is when you were always worried about complaining or about coming out with a story or about not being sure if you were really hurt, suddenly there's this kind of like, it's not a sisterhood per se, but it's really a database that backs you up when you go to file a complaint and no one can ever say, oh, it didn't really happen or Let, let's look into it or whatever because there's you know, 29 women with the same guy in the three year period, right? So this is a, a great example of how kind of like different things work together and how something new is created. Now, if you ask me that the Arab uh, uh, society in Israel or the, the ultra-Orthodox uh, society in Israel do anything with me too, the answer is no. It wasn't prevalent there. It was more in kind of like the liberal, more Western uh, type of, of uh, women and organizations in Israel, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, you know, like the way I, I started uh, um, this answer, but it definitely influences now. And this is the interesting thing. It takes a few years, but all of these kind of like um, waves are eventually touching. And I think revealing those stories in the Haredi community is one of those waves. It's the, you know, the ability to speak up, the ability to open up stories, the ability not to be ashamed. Um, there was also an interesting campaign, by the way, I think uh, this past year, this woman who has uh, money, and this, this is rare, okay? She has money, she decides, you know what? I'm going to put up a campaign on Gilbert Court. I'm not gonna, you know, uh, try to see if anyone else can pitch in, whatever. It's just my personal money. I'm just going to put up these billboards on on Ayalon and major uh, major streets and and buildings, and it's called Habusha Overetzad, which is the shame is moving to the other side, and that is she would plaster the faces of offenders and of men who refused uh, get to their wives. Okay, plaster their faces saying this, you know, the shame is moving to the other side, meaning instead of us hiding, right? Not telling, not telling that we were raped or harassed, now the faces of the offenders are out wow. there on the digital board. Yeah, it was a huge campaign, it's still ongoing. And it, it, it's again an example of what women do in Israel when they want to make a difference. That's exciting to hear. To hear. Um, uh, thank you for sharing that, I didn't know that. A question for is the briefest, but it's the one that shook me um, when I learned it from you. That in Israel this past year alone, COVID's two years old, but just in the last year, 25 women were killed by their partners, a huge increase from earlier years. Now, in Memphis last weekend, Alana, four more people were killed in neighborhoods I took you through on our way to the National Civil Rights Museum, but neighborhoods in which no Jews or white people live. So I, I don't understand the context of the 25 women who were murdered by their partners within the last 11 and a half months. To what do you attribute the tremendous rise in violence against women during COVID? And is it just the marginalized and challenged communities where those of us who aren't poor don't live? 
So the number of women murdered by their partners has, uh, has been on a rise, like you said, uh, from 20 to 25 in the, past, uh, in the past couple of years. Now, what did Corona do in these marriages? Again, this, I guess it's rational for us to understand, but quarantining and being in isolation with the person you don't feel safe with at home is what yields these extreme kind of like uh, uh, numbers that we hear about. And it's, you know, it's understandable. In Israel, the, the economy, uh, the business world, um, the educational world, everything really collapsed in the first six months. Um, it was, it was um, I don't know if you heard the news, but things were closing down and, and there was really like no solution. There was a stagnation up until the, the vaccines came out. This was the situation. And that, that really put everybody at home with no certainty of when we're going, going to come out. And again, it happened here too. I lived it with you. The first, uh, the first time we were quarantining from March to May, like who knew when this would, would, would end? But there was no, the restrictions in Israel were that you were tapped on your phone when you would leave your house more than a uh, hundred meters. What is a hundred meters? Um, what is it, 300 three feet? feet? A meter is three feet, right? Yeah, right, so it's not far, yeah. Yeah, so your phone would be tapped, right? And and the streets were were empty. If you were driving, you would be stopped by by a, a police uh, police car asking you where you're going. And only if you're like a doctor or a nurse or something that you had to really go to the, to the hospital, you would be sent home or would find, uh, or would ha have to pay a fine. So really everybody were confined to their homes for a long period of time. And that repeated itself three times before the vaccines came. So this situation of uh, uh, fear and confinement really yielded the most extreme things you can imagine. And so if I look at the number of complaints filed within the police on domestic violence, and I'm not talking about the murders yet, it went up 700%. The number of- 700? 700%, right? From the, male, from the male rage over all these changes? Is that what you attribute it to, domestic uh, violence? I think the economical uncertainty, this this world crisis, the being you know together at home, not going, not seeing family, not doing holidays together, nothing, and and you know how elaborated the whole zooming Shabbat and zooming Seder and everything, how right. it was great in America. It wasn't like this in Israel. It took a little bit of time. The pivoting thing in Israel didn't work so so fast at at first. And, uh, and the, the internet is, I mean, it's not like every kid has an iPad at home and it's not like that, right? It, it's just not, it's a different system altogether. And so these numbers just skyrocketed. And do they come from certain families? No, those 25 women who were murdered, statistically, they came from all walks of life, from all soci socio-demographical um, uh, parts of the society, really, Anybody could be that. And, and I guess the great example is that um, there are a few that you see their faces and you say, this could be my sister. I mean, this, this, this could be my best friend. They look like you, they behave like you, they have the same degrees as you, they went to the same school, right? Th these are not strangers. These are not kind of like different neighborhoods or, or minorities. This is, this is really 25 women who were murdered um, and again, this is not just Corona. This is a statistics that has to do with the world that has to end. You know, we have to get to a situation where it's zero murders a year, zero. And just to give kind of like a perspective, in America, it's about 500 a year. 
that's something. I mean, I, I don't know if the American society wants to fight this, but for the small for small Israel, 25 is a lot. It's something that everybody wants to bring to a zero. So I don't know, but maybe the 500 needs to get to a zero as well. But this is really, this is the real pandemic. Wait, 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 Let, let's not let that go. That's staggering. There are 330 million Americans. How many Israelis are, are we talking about within this? Nine and a half million. Yeah, yeah, but that includes the, so 25, that is exponential. It would be a lot more than 500 in America. Um, question five. Um, I'm still thinking oh, about how we didn't we didn't talk about the um, the law. Oh, now's the time. Please share the law. Okay, so again, it has nothing to do with the with the domestic violence, but it has to do with the fact that as a lawyer who specializes in women's rights, sometimes I encounter injustice that I can't handle because the law doesn't exist. And so then the question is, do I pass it on and tell the client, the woman? The, the person who has the encountered the injustice, I just can't help you, or do I go and make it up? And that was the case with Efrat, um, a neighbor who in 2011, uh, she was pregnant at the time, and she at week 24 of her pregnancy, um, unfortunately, she went to the hospital and there was no pulse and they had to, um, she had to go through labor and do the whole birth and it was still birth. And uh, back then in Israel, the law said that if you had stillbirth, you had to go back to work the next day, meaning no maternity leave, no rights, no anything. And just as an example, every birth in Israel, women get a maternity leave, a paid maternity leave of 15 weeks. That is a lot. Um, and so just to compare, the stillbirth issue was zero. So when I heard about it from Efat, and I had no idea, Thank God I never had to experience it myself. Neither did my friends, or maybe they did and didn't tell me. But at 2011, I had no idea about stillbirth. It doesn't exist in many books. And there are there weren't many departments and hospitals in which there's a special social worker or a gynecologist or, or a nurse that specializes in, in stillbirth. And so it was a really taboo subject. So I went to dig and to see kind of like what are the protocols or what happens in other countries and things like that. And so um, the law that I changed, it took only five years. So in 2016, I was present at the Knesset, actually with Efrat, the woman, uh, thanks to whom I even learned about this, this issue. And we passed the law. And today in Israel, if, uh, if there's a birth after 22 weeks, whether it's stillbirth or a normal birth, you get the rights of uh, maternity leave, uh, paid maternity leave of 15 uh, weeks and everything else that comes with, with it. And you can choose, obviously, a lot of women uh, with these situations that are really the biggest tragedy I could ever imagine. They choose not to take the entire maternity leave, but at least they have the choice to take time off and to get paid for it. So that was the law that uh, we passed in February 2016, and it was very moving. And just, just a word about Efrat, the year after this, this tragedy, she had twins, twin girls. And so this is kind of like, was the way of the universe to say how things, um, you know, come to a close. You know, the tradition says, And uh, if you save a life, you save an entire world. So Alana, um, what you've done, uh, my sister-in-law um, had a stillbirth. I, I can't imagine how you helped people you'll never know thanks to that law. Um, so 
Thank you for ending on that positive note. And I want to share another positive note. Question five leads um, to when you come back to Memphis in April for your in-person talk, again, the Monday before Passover, because Passover is about freedom on April 11th. Everyone's invited to temple. God willing, there will not be another Delta Omicron. We Gamze Yavor. This too shall pass everyone, even if enduring the passings hard as heck. But I'm going to take you to a statue that was erected since you were here. Um, and it's a tribute along the Mississippi River to the leaders of women's suffrage. Uh, women were not allowed uh, the right to vote, of course, in America until 1920. What a lot of people don't know is that there were women in this congregation, Jossie Wurzberg and others, um, but there was also a man. He was a relative of Temple Israel member who was the real hero. His name was Joe Hanover. Um, and the Tennessee, he was the Tennessee state legislator whose political genius on August 18th, 1920, got the state of Tennessee to become the 36th state necessary to ratify the 19th Amendment, granting all women the right to vote. Um, he asked a question, he, he emigrated from Eastern Europe, his family, and he loved America, but he wanted, he said, why can't mama vote? Why can't, and that's the name of his book that I'll give you when you're here. My question is that in Israel, women had suffrage from the start, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there was an early female leader in Prime Minister Golda Meir. Women serve in the military. You have done your time. Why did these factors not lead to embedding in Israeli society gender justice? You know, I ask myself every day that same question. Um, and here is, here is what I think, or here, here's what I feel from this field. So it's true that in 1948, when the state was established, women had the right to vote as did men. And women were pilots in the army, you know, from the beginning and women were part of the, of the uh, war force and everything. So I call it like an equality ethos, right? In Israel, that is perceived. And why do I say perceived? Because the, I'm going back to, you know, the, the marriage that you officiated, right? We always start like this. Okay, even if we can vote and even if we can go to the army, I did go to the army, I served in the Gaza Strip, okay? But we're, it's always like this, meaning the value of the woman in every table, in every square, in every kind of like profession, the value is always lower than the males, okay? And so while in voting, the voices are equal, right? In representation, it isn't. If we're 51% of the population in Israel, and the Knesset has 120 chairs, shouldn't we be 60 chairs? We should, right? We never were. The highest we got to is 19. And that is also, again, after many, many struggles, I think they would be happy if it was a zero, but it's just, you know, it's, it's like this. So you look at Israel and it looks to you, oh, you know, this is a, a country in which gender studies uh, gen gender justice is is is, uh, is present, and I think it is in many cases compared to the U.S. For example, if I mentioned the whole when we were talking about stillbirth 
and maternity leave, the fact that there is paid maternity leave could be perceived as if Israel is more advanced in labor law and in women's rights, correct? Because it right. seems it exactly. seems that you don't lose, right? You don't lose from parenthood, right? It's, be, it's, get, it's getting paid. But we need to also keep in mind the fact that Israel is a very pro-family country. We have IVF treatment that is subsidized by the government up to two children. Can you imagine? So I think the ethos behind it isn't equality ethos, but it is that the uterus of a woman is actually a national uterus, if I make sense. Because it does. That's fascinating. Meaning that it creates the soldiers, right? You know, to go to the army, or it creates the men to be generals, or it creates the ones who would go into the Knesset and make decision making, right? So right. this uterus is important to the country. It isn't a personal woman's uterus. So you, you, if you look at the legislation, if you look at the culture, it's all present there. It's not. Um, it's not something hidden. It's it's really part of the of the Israeli culture. This kind of like family loving thing. So so going back to the law that allows for maternity leave to be paid, it isn't for the benefit of the woman. Okay, we want her back in the workforce and then having more and more children every year if possible. Right? There's a um, there's tax benefits for children. You know, having four kids got me some tax benefits and other things. So if really if you look at it as a, in the big picture. Uh, it's not gender justice. It's um, I don't know how to explain it, but it's a perceived equality society, maybe. Uh, you should write that up uh, in your next book. Um, I, I'm, I was thinking as you were describing Israel, because because the perception has not led to gender justice, and yet the national uterus is in a is a very compelling explanation. Whereas in America. You have religious leaders in the Orthodox or evangelical white Christian world who say that this mask is a personal choice, but a woman controlling her uterus should be mandated by the government. <laughs> That's so. Uh, we by, have, by the way, in, in right, terms right. Of, of abortions, that's another struggle that's ongoing today, going back to kind of like the topics that women care about today. There are committees in Israel that decide about abortion. You need to apply to a committee. It is not a, a willful thing. And this is going back to the not separation between state and religion and halachic ruling and the belief that from the uh, from day one, there's a neshama, right? That there's a, an actual person in there and the woman can't decide because it's a national uterus and because of religion. So I, I, just to sum it up, you know, whether in America or Israel, whenever religion and government get in bed with each other, both suffer. Um, um, number six, um, to the book you have published in Israel and which I am hoping we can raise the funds to translate into English on extreme controlling behaviors. What areas of life does it include? Can you say more about it? Why is this topic more than interesting for women who are victims of domestic violence. Why was I interested as a husband who's part of a hierarchy? Mm. Okay. So how can I say it not in a long way and not revealing well, everything? What areas of life does it include? Yeah. So let me just start by saying, um, as a lawyer, but also as a person of this world, right? When we hear about 
uh, domestic violence or about these murders that we were talking about um, that happened in Israel and happened here too, we always think about the physical aspect, right? We think about something that is visible to us. We think about blood. We think about a hospital. We think about things that are tangible. And we also have a hierarchy between physical or something that is visible to us and everything else, okay? When we think about words or actions and behaviors or money or other things, we think that they are tolerable or less so, or, you know, we always say that a physical, um, a physical hit, right, is something more, I don't know, more severe than everything else. Um, and what I discovered is that there is this phenomena that happens in so many areas in life that is not a physical violence. And that's, and that's really, it opened this whole world and, and the, the fact that it happens in so many areas in life. So let me, let me give you an example, okay? So imagine a conversation uh, between, between two uh, in a marriage. So she says to him, I need to go to the supermarket. Would you give me a $100 bill? And he says, what do you need it for? So she'll say, you know, I need bread and milk and eggs and, you know, some, some peppers, some cucumbers. Okay, so he gives it to her, right? She does the shopping, she comes back. You know, the next day she says the kid needs a new backpack for school, right? So he gives her a $50 bill and so on. And so when, I, when you ask her, you know, what's going on here? She'll say, oh, I'm not so good with numbers. I'm not so good with money. It's okay. It's better that he has it and gives it to me. Whenever I ask, he always says yes. He never says no. Like he always gives it to me, right? Um, and if we ask the husband, he would say, well, you know, I'm really, I'm doing everything here. I'm making the money. I'm going to work. I'm, I'm making the money. I'm, I'm running all the bills. I'm the, the one in touch with the, with the bank. I know where we stand and whatever she wants, I'll give her. If she'll ask for a new car, I'll buy her a new car. If she'll ask for a diamond ring, I'll buy her a new, a new diamond ring. What is the problem, right? So is there a problem here? Yeah, yeah. So you're outlining uh, financially controlling. Uh, what what what's the emotional, uh, more emotional examples where let's say money isn't the issue? I just want to push you on this. Okay. So again, going back to kind of like let's go into the house of, of a couple. Okay. So he comes comes back home and he says, "Oh my God, the, the the floor here is so dirty. Did you not clean today?" And where is my meal? Did you not did you not make a, a, a hot dinner? And I want to sit down and watch the news right now. Oh, look at these kids. They didn't even do their homework. Send them to bed right now. Okay. You're the worst wife. You're the worst um, mother. And and you, you can't do anything. Okay. Next day comes home from work. This repeats itself. Okay. The third day comes home from work and he says, You're fat, you're ugly. You really you shouldn't leave the house. Right? The next day he comes home. And he says, you're the worst wife ever. You know, the next day he comes up. So this is ongoing. It doesn't have to be even screaming, okay? But this is a verbal kind of like slow um, deterioration of her self-esteem, right? And, and of herself in general, day after day after day. This doesn't end, right? This continues every, 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 every day. And you know, what happens to her after three months? What happens to her after eight years? Uh, and... I know that your research in your book focuses on the interviews you made uh, with Israeli women who are in those. 
But I would bet when it's published in English, God willing, soon, it will resonate with many households in America and hopefully the American Jewish community too, so that men can be more aware um, and women know that they're not alone and that they can get help. And hopefully, that's my final question. What can individual men and women like me and you do, even if we're not expert, excuse me, if we're not authors or degreed in this area as you are, what can individual men and women do to bring about change and greater gender justice if we're not as skilled as you in the legislative arena? So just a small comment to what you said before, it is true. Uh, it's not like I was surprised, but, but here, you know, the three years that I've spent here, I get to have a lot of one-on-ones with my girlfriends, right? The this is here in Los Angeles, you're saying? Yeah, in Los Angeles, we'll sit, we'll have a coffee, we'll have, uh, we'll have a glass of wine. I always bring up the fact, you know, that I did this research, that I met these women, that I've written this book. And what do I hear every time? They say, you know what? This is so weird. So what I'm experiencing is not normal. What I'm experiencing is pathological in my marriage. And they suddenly remember experiences and behaviors and things that happen that seem to them normal or mundane or just like any couple experiences and suddenly right and i'm sitting it's very hard to sit with your friends and suddenly listen to her kind of realize something in her life and in her marriage and that makes a whole lot of difference from that point on so this is just to say that it's i didn't interview them per se for the book but i've heard you know, 80 stories while here in the past three years that resonate with the stories that I tell in the book of the women that I interviewed in Israel, and they are no different. You know, even though there is separation here between state and religion, um, the stories are the same, the behaviors are the same, the marriage, the relationship, those extreme controlling behaviors are the same. And so what can we do, like you said? So this is what I discovered. You know how during Corona, we called some people, the first responders, right? This was the term that was invented during this pandemic. And so we think of first responders as the ones that are doctors and nurses, right? Now we think of the teachers also, but the people who are the front, correct? Or like kind of like your first encounter, yeah? It could be your first encounter if you're sick or it could be your first encounter if you need help or advice. And so in the case of these stories, right? And you can hear that they always come up kind of like, not, not by mistake, but they just kind of like come up uh, intuitively. I call us first responders. Now you could be a community leader or you could be just a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, someone with uh, ears that you could listen, but you're a first responder. If a woman tells you a story that doesn't sound, that, that isn't you know, physical violence like the way we know it, and the way you listen, the way you are a first responder is going to determine and dictate everything else afterwards because she's only going to tell it once, if at all. And the first reaction is the one that's going to create the line that comes afterwards. So if your reaction is, oh, well, that's nothing. You know, if you weren't beaten up and you didn't end up in the hospital, you didn't experience anything. So he curses you every day. Oh, big deal. I had it for 30 years, right? If this is the reaction, the woman is never going to share it again. So as a first responder, we have a, a huge responsibility, men and women alike, in the active listening that we practice when we hear these stories, okay? 
you don't even have to say anything. You don't have to be an expert. You don't need to know anything. You need to be a listener. And I call it in my book that we are like a canvas on which the story is imprinted for the first time. And the way the story is told and the way the women hear the story echoes back to them from the ears of the listener is really the first step on the solving the problem. And by solving, it could be numerous things. It could be uh, getting a divorce, but it doesn't have to be. It could be going to counseling. It could be choosing other choices in life. It could be speaking up with the husband. It could be trying to get people to join you on the conversation with the husband because you can't do it by yourself. Whatever this is, the first time you told the story and the first time you imprinted it on an active listener is the most important step. And so I call ourselves the first responders for these stories, even though we don't have to respond per se. You have a translator for the book, uh, you told me, right? So it's just a matter of getting uh, the funding to get it done. And um, I hope soon, because what we haven't talked about during COVID, we talked about the 25 women who died in Israel, 500 in America in the past year. I talked about a wedding at the beginning of this hour. Uh, there have been ruptures during this time that are less dramatic, but equally demeaning and equally hard. Um, divorce, yes, but depression. Um, homes, which used to be sanctuaries, have become like prisons. Um, so let's get this book done while we still know what the term first responders relates to. Um, finally, I just want to say, while you are extraordinary in your day job, and I'm not saying that just to compliment you objectively as the regional director of the entire Western states plus Memphis, New Orleans, for the Jewish Agency for Israel, um, your night work, uh, or whenever you do this after Zumba between midnight and four, raising four children and writing your book, this work um, is so much a part of what it means to be a Jew. Uh, because the mission of the Jew, as Wiesel said, is not to make the world more Jewish, it's to make the world more human. However you want to phrase it. Um, so, Dr. Corton, we can't wait for your April talk. Um, I will not put you on the spot. You can speak on whatever you want prepared, but you're just as good unrehearsed. So I hope everyone watching across the Internet, wherever you are, those of you on Zoom, uh, you can stay after we go off Facebook Live for alone time with Dr. Corton. Uh, but I want to thank everyone for attending TIU and have a safe, safe night and a peaceful Shabbat, everyone, and a Tubishvat Sameach, a happy Tubishvat, uh, one week from this weekend. We'll see you in April. Take care, Alana. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Are we off Facebook? Yeah, we're off. Oh, thank God. Thank you, Ajay. I wanted to thank you publicly in front of all those. Those of you um, who are on, um, if it, we can unmute everyone, that's the benefit of coming um, to the Zoom. I know a lot of people have already left. They got, they got what they wanted from Alana, but I know some of you probably have other things to share. Um, if you will, please do. Um, she's all ours.
and she's on LA time, so it's not as late. All right, I'm here. Any, anyone want to um, offer anything in the next five minutes? If not, we'll a, just yeah, I go, Mallory. Sorry, hi, doctor. I'm, just, I'm getting y'all mixed up. Hi, Rabbi Greenstein. It's good to see you again. Two nights in a um, row. I love Mallory, I Arkansas. <laughs> um, you actually brought up a fantastic issue for me personally. Um, I have a degree here in political science and international relations. And one thing I studied was women's rights, reproductive rights in other countries. So my question for you is with Israel, as you said, you know, the, the uterus of the country, do you feel like women that are infertile or just cannot have children are more prone to violence in the home or in society? And if so, do you think it's more prevalent here in the U.S. or in Israel? What a question. Wow. <laughs> it's in, that's incredible, first of all, um, that you think about it and, and that you ask that. Um, so it's true that as a familial country or ethos, uh, have, not having children is a problem um, for the women themselves. And I guess, you know, for, for Israel as a culture, the solutions are, um, you know, adoption and uh, surrogates, and like I said, an IVF, and all of these solutions really are are heavily subsidized by the country. By subsidized, I mean like almost 100%. So uh, really, the kind of like the will is for for every family to have children, and so on and so on. And yes, there's a lot of violence that's related to infertility, uh, more so in Orthodox uh, streams. Uh, than other streams, because I because I think that uh, you know the pour the mitzvah of, of um, procreate is more present there, so I think it's more prevalent there. But again, nobody knows about it because of what I said uh, before, you know, because because of not talking about it. But yeah, awesome. Thank you, Russell. Do you have a question or a comment? I'm sorry. Okay, anyone um, else? If not, we'll say Lila Tov. Terry, or, I'm sorry, or someone, That's Betsy, okay. oh my gosh, one of the great therapists in Memphis I'll introduce you to, Betsy Mandel Carley, who's a relationships person. I, uh, are I you going to offer, please, please uh, Betsy. <laughs> I, I don't know why I have just the temple um, logo, <laughs> but I think it has to do with the group last night. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, she is temple now. We got her to lead the grief and loss support group, which... Um, is a, a wonderful thing, but Betsy, you have the temple logo. The rabbi doesn't. The floor is yours. It's 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 weird. Anyway, um, I don't have the cultural knowledge of um, the subtleties in relationships in Israel. But one of the things that I know, having been a marriage and family therapist for over 50 years, is that I've gotten to walk through the period of time when, uh, you know, there was not the possibility of equal relationships because women didn't have equal power for how they uh, were going to behave financially, emotionally, and so on. That's changed some. And what I have found is that there's a huge need for education for both men and women to understand the early patterns of lack of equality 
how it impacts our sense of self. And I believe so much of this is educational within the relationships as well as generally, because really anyone who is married today grew up with much more discrimination between the genders than we intellectually believe we have today. And we have to learn how to think, feel, and behave as equals. Men have issues with it too, because sense of self historically was that you're not a man unless you are taken care of. And women historically sense of self had to be dependent on. So I'm wondering how much education goes on in Israel, I know that in my field, a whole lot of focus has been in the last 10 years on educating gender roles and the impact from our past. Uh, it's, it's amazing and it's fascinating. And if, I, if, uh, if we could uh, get together when I visit, I would love to hear more, more input, of I course. I would love to do that. <laughs> so what happens in the educational system in Israel is that um, it's, it's mostly the public system. There is no private system per se. There'll be like, you know, two or three schools. It's really a public system. And uh, uh, the classes are big. The separation between the genders in the educational system happens only in Orthodox communities. Um, but there is something interesting. In the past couple of years, they opened a school that's secular, meaning not Orthodox, uh, for girls only thinking about the fact that girls learn better without uh, men in the in the classroom to create kind of like the way or the path to equality the right. way the way that you're describing, which I think is fascinating. Uh, but you are very much right that we need to learn how to be uh, equal. You know, living in a world that isn't, it's kind of hard to relearn it. And even if I look at my daughters, they haven't learned it. So it's kind of, it's taken generations. But I'm sure you know all these researches that even in kindergarten or or in the in early childhood classes, when the teacher gives time to someone to answer a question, they'll give a few milliseconds more to the male to the to the uh, boys than they will to the girls, and they don't even control it. And so this is this again the first step or the first stage when you kind of like enter into an educational system and you learn. You know, you learn, uh, you know, you probably know about Gilligan. So you learn at the age of 11 or 12 to silence your voice as a girl, right. as, a, as, a, as a woman. But and you can unlearn that. You can unlearn. We have to unlearn it. And, and that is exactly the age to do it. And there are many, many programs that are focused about that. There are programs about to, to uh, create STEAM um, uh, for girls to bring more, more women to high tech, which are today in Israel, they're only 20%. So there's a lot of work in, that's done in Israel in the education. <laughs> Thank you. It's past the hour, um, but uh, I want to thank you so much. And again, uh, this is, we say, it sounds like I eat raw oats, but lehitra oats means until next time, not goodbye. So lehitra oat and Dr. Corton, thank you for um, exceeding the expectations and they were already high. So thanks to everyone. Be safe again. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you, everyone. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Good night. Good night.